After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went, and they found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying this colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in one on, in, on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within the walls, Within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another, because, because you did not re- recognize the time of God's coming to you. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Um, She has a really scary story about a near-death experience. Um, It was from a time when she was 13 years old. And uh, a young Maggie and four of her friends decided to go swimming at a deserted beach in Victoria, the 90-mile beach, if you know it. And uh, the beach was completely deserted at the time. And the kids decided to go into the water. For a while, all of them are just paddling and wading uh, in, in the, uh, the shallow areas. But then they get a little bit deeper and then they're waist deep. And suddenly, it's like their legs are ripped out from under them and they get sucked out into sea. Yes, you guessed it, all five of them had been caught in a dangerous rip and had been sucked out to sea by the rip. And the way Maggie describes this rip is terrifying. She says it had her under the water like she was in a a washing machine and uh, just she was gasping for breath and she was terrified. Friends, I want us to imagine a similar situation this morning. I want us to imagine two swimmers caught in a rip. One of them is willing to ask for help, but the other wants to sort out the problem on their own. Who will sink and who will swim? I think the answer is obvious, assuming that both of them were struggling in the rip. See, friends, this world has ultimately two types of people. 
There are those who know that they are lost and there are those who refuse to acknowledge that they are lost. We all need a saviour from our sin. We all need a saviour. So the question is, are we willing to ask for help? Are we willing to ask to be saved from sin? As the story with Mel's mother continues, there was actually a surfer on that beach and he saw the kids in trouble. He picked up his board and he paddled out and he saved them all. Their saviour came to them. They knew they were lost and they accepted his help. Friends, the question is, are we willing to ask for help in our sinful situation? Are we willing to put out our hand and receive the help that only God, the Saviour, brings? Uh, This morning, as we come to Luke's Gospel, we've reached the last week of Jesus' life on earth and he arrives in Jerusalem. It's his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. But as we look deeper at this passage today, we're going to see that it's actually a tale of two responses, a tale of two different responses that can be had to the Lord Jesus. And this passage is going to challenge us, which one will be ours? Which side will we be on? Will we be like those who know they need help? Or will we be like those who are too proud to acknowledge that they are lost? That's the challenge of this passage today. Which side will we take? So let's get into the passage today. What we're going to see uh, in the scripture today is three key things about the Lord Jesus. So number one, the first thing we see about Jesus in the passage today is that he is the fulfilment of prophecy. Jesus is the fulfilment of prophecy. Would you have a look with me at verse 28 as we begin? It says, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. So the first thing we see about Jesus in this passage is that he is the fulfilment, the fulfiller of prophecy. There are two prophecies that Jesus fulfills in this short section that I just read. The first one is simply his own words about the location of the donkey, right? Um, He shows by that that he can predict the future, that he has all knowledge. Because he was able to tell them ahead of time what would happen with that donkey, Have a look again there at verse 30 with me. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. And as we read on in the passage, this is exactly what happens. Um, So we see here, uh, all throughout the Gospels, that the Lord Jesus knows the future. Does it encourage you then? Does it comfort you to know that, that Jesus knows the future, that Jesus knows your future? Does that comfort and encourage you? He's already planned your future and he knows all about it. This should comfort us and this should enable us to have less anxiety about our future. God has planned it and God is in control 
of your future. So that should comfort us, shouldn't it? Uh, The section here is showing us that Jesus is the fulfilment of prophecy and it might not surprise you for me to share that I think that this donkey bit is actually not the main point of the section. Uh, Yes, Jesus fulfills prophecy, but there is a far greater prophecy in this section that he's fulfilling. So I'd like us to turn back to the Old Testament. If you can find the book of Zechariah, please turn back to Zechariah. You can find it in the table of contents at the start of your Bible, if you're not sure, but it's, it's near the end of the Old Testament. So I'll give you a moment to find Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. not the easiest book to find. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. So keep, keep looking for that. Now the context of that passage in Zechariah, it's predicting the coming king entering into Jerusalem. And uh, its context in the passage means that the, in the, the original context, the Old Testament context, the campaign over Israel's enemies would culminate in a triumphal entry of its king into Jerusalem. So let's read about this prophecy uh, from Zechariah 9, verse 9. prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, And the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So friends, we can see here clearly, can't we, how the Lord Jesus fulfilled this prophecy with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Because Zechariah prophesied that the king of Israel, the Messiah, would return to the city. But what does he say there? Does he say he will be riding on a horse of war? Does he say the Messiah will be coming into the city as a warrior, perhaps coming in a military tank ready to fire on his enemies? No. No, see there in Zechariah chapter 9. The king comes to Jerusalem righteous and having salvation, gentle, gentle and riding on a donkey. See there in verse 10, the Messiah comes in to proclaim peace to the nations. And we see there that it's been prophesied that initially, initially God's kingdom here is a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of grace, not yet a kingdom of glory. Not yet a kingdom of glory and apocalyptic power. But firstly, Jesus comes in peace and grace to the earth. So for the starters here, we see the Messiah comes in peace and grace before he comes in glory. Uh, Jesus comes to Jerusalem as a kingdom of peace, humble and riding on the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is the fulfilment of that prophecy in Zechariah. It's great that Jesus fulfills these prophecies, isn't it? Or any prophecy. For when God says that something will happen, God follows through on what he has said. 
Now, uh, I might be losing my mind a bit, I think, because twice in the past few weeks I've actually walked out of a coffee shop without paying the bill, uh, both in Griffith, so I might be getting a bad name. I, I did go back in and pay it. Um, I'm not really sure why that happens, and you can ask Melissa why I forget to do up my fly sometimes. I'm really not, not too sure. But, you know, with the bill, th- there's, there's an importance on doing what we're meant to do, isn't there? and on following through on what we say we're going to do. See, friends, we fail at this sometimes, but God never does. Our God has never failed us in his word. He's always followed through. He's always kept his prophecies. He's always kept his promises in the scriptures. So these truths should really help us to trust God even more, shouldn't they, remembering these things? The fact that God always keeps his word will help us to trust him even more with our lives. If you have a bad health diagnosis, will you be able to trust that God keeps his promises of taking you to heaven? If you're worried about your kids, will you remember that God is faithful? Will you trust in his goodness to work in their lives according to his will? If you're worried about your future, maybe about where you're going to work, or your finances, or maybe about who you're going to marry. Hopefully not who you have married. Um, You see, if we're worried about our future, remembering that God is trustworthy, that he comes through on his words, will help us place our lives in his hands and submit to the Bible's teaching about how we should live. Friends, God's got you covered, and you can trust him that his word is faithful and that he really does have your best interests at heart. So first, we've seen that Jesus is the fulfilment of prophecy, and that gives us great confidence to trust God. The second thing we see about Jesus in the passage is that he is declared king by his disciples in this passage, isn't he? Have a look at verse 37 and onwards. It says, When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, they shouted. So here we see Jesus is declared king by his disciples and not just by the twelve, but by a whole bunch of disciples that were following him, thousands probably. As he draws near the city and he comes down that mountain of olives into the city, the crowd around him starts to go absolutely nuts. They're going absolutely crazy because the king is coming into the city, King Jesus. The whole crowd of disciples, thousands of them, joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They're so stoked that this miraculous king is entering the city. And they're so stoked that even more prophecies are being fulfilled, like the one we read in Psalm 118, where it said, Blessed is the king who comes now in the name of the Lord. The crowd is so happy that their king, that the Messiah, is coming into that city to save. Now, I've told you the story before about uh, when Mel and I were on our honeymoon in the Cook Islands, and uh, I didn't recognise a king of the local island and got him to take my photo. Um, was not one of my better moments. Um, have you ever failed to recognise someone famous? I failed even to recognise a king in the Cook Islands. 
You see, there's a sense in which the crowds here recognise that Jesus is the king and they're praising him. But then we see in the passage here there are others who do not recognise Jesus as the king. Have a look at verse 39. It says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. See, the big crowd there on the day is singing Jesus' praises, but we see there the Pharisees tell him to rebuke his disciples for that. And notice that they call him teacher and they don't call him king or lord. Some people are praising him, but the Pharisees want Christ to rebuke the people that are praising him. So our passage today is definitely a tale of two different responses to Jesus, isn't it? There are those who praise him and there are those who reject him. We can see those responses in our world quite easily. We see there Jesus says in verse 40 that all creation, all creation should be crying out to him and praising him. But we see the passage is a tale of two responses, those who praise him. And those who reject him. And isn't it ironic that one week later, that even the crowds here that are praising him will also be rejecting him as well as he goes to the cross. One week later, these crowds, along with the Pharisees, call for the Lord Jesus to be crucified. So friends, how do we recognise him as king? What parts of our life are lived in submission to his kingship? Or could I ask what parts of our life are not living in submission to Christ's kingship? Friends, if we recognise Jesus as our king, we will live for him and everything we have and do belongs to him. He is Lord of all, he is Lord of peace and grace and he is also the Lord of all glory. The image of the invisible God All our life should be lived in response to him. That was the key part in my conversion, realising how central Jesus is in my life. All our life should be lived in response to King Jesus. So secondly, we see here Jesus is declared king by his disciples. Is that the same for you and me? The third thing we see in this passage is that Jesus is the bringer of judgment to the temple. Have a look with me at verse 45 and onwards. Then he entered the temple area and began driving out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So here we see that the Lord is the bringer of judgment on the temple servants. In verse 45, we see that he enters the temple and begins to drive out the sellers. The temple had been turned into a market. This place of worship had been turned into a place of retail. Uh, When we were in Sydney over Christmas, we went to the new Miranda Westfields in in the Sutherland Shire. It's huge, an amazing place of retail. And I I sent my buddy a text and I said, I think I have affluenza, affluenza, because I'm loving the affluence of the Australian life. The temple had been turned into a place of retail and finance and profit. The worshippers had missed the big point, hadn't they? They'd lost the big idea. You see what Jesus says there, God had said his house will be a house of prayer, but they had made it a den of robbers, 
a place where wicked people hide out and do dodgy stuff. It was meant to be a house of worship, but they turned it into a market. And worse still, the market had probably invaded the court of the Gentiles, a big court at the exterior of the, the, the main area of the temple. And so the market was stopping the Gentiles, stopping the nations from coming in to worship Israel's God. A terrible thing. And so here we see, as in the other Gospels, Jesus cleanses the temple. It's a shorter account in in Luke, but we know that he overturns the tables of the money changers. He forms a whip out of cords and drives out the livestock. Can you imagine livestock in the temple? It's hard enough when they're on the Burley Griffin Way, but they're in God's temple. And so the Lord returns to his temple and brings his judgment upon that false worship and that inhibiting of true worship that was happening in God's house of prayer. Jesus brings judgment on the false worship in the temple. He shows up and judges that. Friends, what would happen if the Lord was to show up in our lives tomorrow just like he showed up in the temple that day? How would Jesus see it if he showed up in our lives tomorrow? If he saw our behaviour on Monday through to Saturday? See, are we just Sunday Christians? Do we live the ways of Jesus on Sunday and then the ways of the world during the week? How would we go if God showed up in our lives during the week, during the times when no one else can see us, when we don't want anyone else to see us? So it's February now, friends. How are we going at reading our Bible this year? And praying as an individual and with others. How are we going? How are we going at cultivating community with believers and becoming a healthy disciple of Christ? Good questions for us to be thinking about as we start the year. So we've seen in our passage today, it's a tale of two responses to Jesus. I remember the story I told at the beginning about Mel's mum and the beach how she was lost in the water in the rip and how she was so distressed she felt like she was in a washing machine being churned up by the rip. You know, friends, I think that that's a bit like finding God, perhaps. You see, people, we need to realise that we're in trouble. We need to realise that we need help before we reach out for a saviour. Salvation is like being lost in the water of a rip We need to realise that we need God's help and put out our hand for the help of a saviour. That might happen more often in the third world where you've got less stuff. But in Australia, maybe our affluenza, the easy great life we live in Australia or even Griffith stops us from remembering we need God. We can't do it ourselves. Uh, Mel's mother was um, saying to me the other day, she spoke to a person recently who worked in palliative care and the person said it's so amazing talking to people who know they are dying because they're open to talking about the Lord and open to talking about spiritual things. And this lady said that in her profession in palliative care, one of the regular questions she's asked by her patients is this, is there life after death? See, friends, we need to realise we're at a low point. We need to realise we're in trouble before we'll reach out and seek a saviour from our troubles. 
Our passage today is the tale of two responses to Jesus. We can either be those who know they need help and reach out for the lifeguard or those who push Christ away because we're too proud to ask for help for our salvation. We can be like the crowds who are praising Jesus as their king and saviour. We can be like the Pharisees who are pushing him away and wanted to destroy him. Friends, which side are we on? The side of the world or the side of King Jesus? There's a great quote by Tim Keller which says this. He says, The church is not a museum for pristine saints, but it is a hospital ward for broken sinners. Isn't that the truth? Jesus said it is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. And he came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Do you recognise that you are a sinner who was ultimately lost without the cross of Christ? If you don't, I would suggest that you don't really understand the gospel. But if you do, then hang on to that cross because nothing can take it away from you. And it is powerful to save you. This is the two responses, to reach out and take the hand of Jesus and let him pull you onto that salvation surfboard or not to ask him at all. Two types of people, those who know that they are lost and those who refuse to acknowledge that they are lost. Will we be on the side of the saviour or the side of the sceptic? Let us... Seek God's help and grasp his hand as we seek to become healthy disciples of Jesus. 